Well, as always, I like to start with a little weather update, because as I get older, my understanding is that the way that you become a distinguished older person is you basically talk about the weather all the time and who has cancer. Or maybe that was mm-hmm. just my grandparents' uh, generation. I don't know. We'll see what we talk about. Maybe we'll talk about, like, uh, you know, crazy internet things, or when uh, RDF was a big deal and how no one can deal with that. But here's, here's my question for both of you. So I don't know how it is over there in, uh, on the West Coast, but it's it's it was like 87 yesterday, and I feel like maybe it's time to dust off my shorts. Do you think? Do you think this is this is an appropriate time to start wearing shorts? Where, when, where do you cut the line over there in uh, in the Bay Area and up in Seattle? When do you pull the shorts out of the mothballs? I mean, well, I'm I'm still yeah. in sweaters right now, so oh. I don't I don't even <laughs> understand what's going on with the short thing. Yeah. Well, maybe do, right. do you have this? Do you have a crossover where you do? I don't know why I call it this, but I feel like the San Diego style, where you got you got shorts on the bottom and long, warm sleeves on top. Is there some time during the year where you do that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm more curious as to like if at 87 you're not pulling out shorts. Like, what is your threshold there? Like 104? I mean, mm. 87 seems like clearly shorts weather. Like that's not even yeah fuzzy is it like 70 eh, maybe 62 it was 50 up here in seattle this week and yeah lots of shorts out given that for up here that's warm so yeah i think i think maybe when it's in the 90s that's that's oh, when okay. you start wearing shorts full time because i see because it's still kind of cool inside and maybe you wear some like thinner pants like the not like they used to be called khakis but i don't know what you call them now they're like jean style they're like five pocket pants i think they call them but they've got a nice thin fabric to them and I, see. I think five pockets a little overblown. One of them is just like a coin pocket. I mean, really, like that's sure. that's some marketing gone wrong. Ooh. Yeah, the- <laughs> that would be. Yeah, good. I, mean, I, I mean, just <laughs> your full linen jumpsuit. I see probably comes out now. Maybe a mm. jumper. Lots of things you can pull yeah. off right now. Yeah, a linen a linen onesie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just you know Richard. Now that you said that, I'm just immediately envisioning Cote and a linen seersucker suit. Mm. I'm just like, yeah, that every day. Yeah. Now, if he wears a, if he wears a jumper to CF Summit, that's getting him on stage. Ooh, a jumper. Oh yes. I actually I actually you're, have two. I think I have jumper. Cote, you're on stage. I'll, I'll, I'll keep lock that. it in. <laughs> Got to find one. <laughs> well, you know, I was over in uh, in in uh, France last week, and it reminded me that all of the uh, uh, I don't know the the workers people work on roads and carpentry they all wear those those uh, those onesie outfits. Have you known that? Have you uh, noticed that? Like, like over here, we don't have like a uniform. You just like show up, build a highway or whatever you want. But over there, they've always got like the big suits with the reflective gear. It's a very distinct look they have. I wonder, wonder if that's uh, some sort of EU standard. Yeah. yeah, little known fact, that's actually the lab's uniform as well. That we don't really tell people that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. There's, there's some strong Velcro on the side. So when you pair, you have to stay together until someone comes and peels you apart. That, that just would drape them in velvet. Yeah. Well, you know, before we get to the news, I do, you know, little news. I, I think I actually have three seersucker suits, but one of them hasn't been hemmed yet. <laughs> but I always feel, I mean, I know what y'all are going to say. It's inevitable, but I always feel a little like over the top if I wear one of those. You know, it just seems like a little like, hey, look at me. But man, they are kind of comfortable. Uh, you do have a strong sense of self-awareness. Mm. So that's that's right. <laughs> right. A strong that's sense what, of self-awareness. Exactly. <laughs> Or a strong sense of uh, self-fashion. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, hopefully you can go endorse me for that on LinkedIn. Self-awareness oh. plus one. That's Do good. Steer soccer suits. Yeah. Well, why don't you introduce yourself briefly, guest? And then, uh, you know, you can do an extended biography 
<laughs> if you want to <laughs> later on. Uh, well, uh, so I guess I am the only guest, Abby Kearns. I am the executive director for Cloud Foundry Foundation, the mm. home of the open source Cloud Foundry. That's right. Now, and then, and then uh, CF Summit is coming up in, uh, is it two or three weeks? Sometime soon, right? Three weeks, April 18th through 20th in mm. fantastic Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah. I haven't been there in a long time. That's that's a nice place. But uh, so we'll, we'll come back and talk about some stuff happening in the uh, the Cloud Foundry world and uh, some, some of the things interesting at CF Summit to look forward to. But first, as always, we have a few little little news items. Why don't, why don't you pick from the, uh, how do you say it, menagerie that we have there, uh, Richard? What, which, yeah. one, which, one's, which one do you want to lead off with? Triple word score. Yeah, let's start off with the, we'll start with the top. So I, I listed out the Salesforce buys MuleSoft. I think you talked about it in one of your other 14 podcasts, but mm-hmm. I thought we could cover it here. Uh, yeah, it was a big buy in our space. Obviously, MuleSoft, a, a partner in the Cloud Foundry space, so good for them. That's awesome. Interesting buy for Salesforce themselves. I mean, it, it seems like the hello world for every iPaaS is, can you talk to Salesforce? Mm. So it'll be interesting in the integration space. Does that kind of indicate playing favorites or is that them just doubling down because look a competitor like microsoft has already a strong native integration story and for salesforce that hasn't been something they've had in-house so i don't know what your hot take on on that purchase was man i i I don't know i I, i'm i'm trying to warm my take up i think they bought it for like 6.5 billion dollars which yeah uh, that was not that was not found in the couch money yeah that's a lot of clams as they say you know uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess nominally, if that's a word, uh, yeah, you got the Salesforce in the cloud and they got to pump the data up there to, uh, drain out the on-premise mm-hmm. CRM, uh, tool or pool there, which I guess makes sense. And, uh, but I don't know, you know, Salesforce also owns Heroku and a few other things. And so they're always, they always have more ambitions to, uh, to, to be more than just, just, uh, you know, having salespeople fill out how their, their work is going in sales reports. So maybe there's something there as well. But yeah, you know, you got your uh, data integration, you know, but but really what it reminded me of is that back when they were called MuleSource, I think I went to several of their conferences and they once gave me some uh, some cufflinks with, I, mean, I was going to say a donkey, but I guess it's a mule with a little mule on it. And I don't know if I still have those. I should I should find those, you know, for yeah, I mean, for all of my French cuff events that I attend, the the galas well, and and everything that uh, clearly go with the suits you have in your closet. That's so, right. I mean, <laughs> lock it those in. would go well with the seersucker suit. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think they would. I just sort of what do they call it? You can shoot out your your uh, your cuffs or whatever, yeah, and just Damn. constantly be adjusting them, get people to ask. Yeah, stop in traffic, my friend. Stop in traffic. Yeah, they, they uh, MuleSoft is an interesting company. I mean, they do they still have like a ESB that they do, or do they shift over from they that? They do. Yeah, they've been no, around for a long that time. And, yeah, kind of the API management piece, mm. and again, still playing an integration, not as much the connector suite that I'm aware of as some of the other like cloud integration vendors. So, again, probably a good buy, an expensive buy, and one from you know, this was a company that went public what a year ago, so mm, they probably went right. cheaper twelve months ago than they are today, but. Nonetheless, if you got the cash and you think that's going to help your ecosystem or it's going to help, as you said, accelerate the data migration to public cloud, then go for it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So we'll we'll see what pans out with that. But yeah. so so what else? What do we else do we have this week? I see one of our things. It has the word omnibus in front of it. Yeah, I, I always say- like a good omnibus. 
Yeah, the, the second one I'll point out is is I, I like that uh, Google did a lot of good security things last week. They, you know, it's not uncommon for people to point out that Google Cloud still seems to struggle a little bit with the enterprise story as it's more kind of big data and cloud processing. It's kind of the kind of forward-looking cloud, not as friendly to maybe traditional enterprise. But they shipped a number of cool security things last week around securing things in virtual private clouds, actually having better audit control for who's doing what, even preventing denial of service. And even that, I really like their data loss prevention API, which can actually mask out sensitive data as it moves between systems, which mm. is actually really important. So I thought they did a number of really good things last week, including even some FedRAMP authorization and some other things they're taking advantage of with partnership. So as usual, don't sleep on Google, especially as they're, they're able to do some cool things with security. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And then, uh, you know, I haven't read this Cloud Act yet. I like that they have oh. it in all capital letters, which makes yeah, me think it must it stand, stand for something. something. Amazing. Ho- hopefully the C in cloud stands for cloud itself, all capitalized. No, of course and not. Do you think, was, do you think uh, our lawmakers would be that funny in naming things? No, I, I can't believe they got it right. But, yeah, it's clarifying lawful overseas use of data, mm. which – it this stands for cloud. I mean, I'll be darned. They got Clarifying the acronym. Right? Overseas use. Oh, right, right. Does you think that mean is that the data going overseas or if you get data from overseas? Does well, it clarify I think this that? all has to do with yeah, this all has to do with trying to make it simpler, I think, for treaties between companies to request data from computers outside of each other's borders. Is oh, got the point. It. Yeah. So how are you having maybe less sketchy ways for people to actually as part of legal requests or law enforcement or whatever? And there is something in front of the Supreme Court right now in the US around actually forcing companies to pull data from overseas servers. So I think this was trying to actually do a legal piece of that. The only reason I included that, not because of our our strong law audience to the podcast, but Mm. mainly because this also plays into people's concerns sometimes with, when I put things in public cloud, what am I signing up for? And sometimes it's way overblown, the concern. But there are, you know, logistical considerations when this is now on someone else's server. It's not always up to you then how that gets treated as part of a request or an audit. So, you know, this isn't saying, oh, my gosh, run terrified and put everything in your private cloud because you can have your own challenges with doing that. But you should be aware of even the policy implications of putting things in public cloud. Right, right. Well, it seems like it seems like everyone who uses the modern Internet could have used that like five years or so ago. Make sure there was some clarification. But, what you know, that reminds me of one I didn't put in there. Did you all see that uh, like Toys R Us is shutting down? That's kind of crazy. I did. Huh? did. Did both of yeah. you shop at Toys R Us a lot? Or I shouldn't say shop. You would want your parents to shop a lot more at Toys R Us when you were a kid? Uh, I will admit some of it, Abby. I, I, um, as a parent, I can say that I have never actually been in a Toys R Us as a parent. Mm, Well, I think that's the problem right there. Right. (laughs) So I'm like, I was not surprised when they went under because I've actually, as a parent of a child, never walked in there. Nice. Yeah. I have been there as a as a parent, and while I haven't walked out with one of those giant or those mini BMWs that a kid sits in and goes one mile an hour, <laughs> they do seem to have a lot of those there. Yeah, yeah. I remember going there a lot as a kid, and uh, man, it was it was it was almost like uh, it was like Costco for a kid. The one I used to go to, it used to have like really high. Maybe it's just because I was small, so everything seemed big. But it had really high shelves that were just like packed with toys. You know, as a whole whole uh whole row with like gi joe toys on it which of course that's what i like to play with and uh i remember as an adult i was disappointed that they went with that kind of like low shelf thing and then they had this clothed nonsense 
it just seemed like they uh, they decost code it. But that probably has nothing to do with uh, them going out of business. But I, w- I was in uh, I was in Paris for like a week last week for work, you know, with my glorious life. And I think I even saw a, a Toys R Us there somewhere. So who who knows? So, yeah, I know they get lumped Toys into in Paris. Yeah, I know. That's, I that's think striking it was. Must be pronounced differently. Maybe I just was like I was getting over jet lag and I had some weird dreams that <laughs> so I confused with, uh, <laughs> with with reality. I've uh, I've seen them get lumped into the whole hey disruption blockbuster sort of camp, mm. but it seems like again they had some of their own financial. It's not just a digital disruption story. It was yeah. also I think a public company that got kind of bought in to go private, so they had some massive debt and they didn't figure out the the online channel correctly. So this isn't just a hey brick and mortar is always dead. So probably that's an easy, lazy story to write, but it seems like there's more to it than that. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to check that out. Definitely seemed more complicated than that, Richard, in terms of... I hope so. Just a lot of the business side of of what's been reported seemed a lot more complicated than just e-retail hits again. Right. I think it's just the cutthroat business of toys was really my takeaway. (laughs) That's right. As illustrated... You thought cloud was bad. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently toys are really bad. Yeah, do not get into sharp-edged plastics. That's all all the toys. As as well documented in the... uh, Was this in the late 90s? The documentary Toys? It is a crazy business. You get, you get a, you remember, no one ever noticed my favorite line there. Was it was it LL Cool J who was in there? And he goes into the cafeteria and he gets all upset that, as he says, his food is touching. It's like a military man needs a military meal. I think of that often because my, my dad was like that. He would have to have his salad in a whole separate bowl or he would just get all out of joint that the food was touching. Oh, man. I'm the same, but that's a pretty deep pull. So good, good pull from, the, from that movie. Yeah. Well done. Food's touching. Well, the last news item. It looks like there's more uh, database support in Azure. What's what's going on over there? Yeah, I called that, that one out as well. It's Microsoft's general uh, availability release of their Azure database service, not just for SQL Server, which they've had for years, but also for MySQL and Postgres. And again, pointed that out as people look for sometimes non-proprietary options. There's some really cool cloud databases available both in Microsoft and Google and, and Amazon and others. But the- and you are saying, like, I'm just using that because I'm not going to put DynamoDB anywhere else for NoSQL or Cosmos DB. And so these sort of relational database options that are just using kind of standard databases you could run on premises, but here's a hosted version, can be pretty compelling. So if you're looking at the public cloud and trying to store some data in there, you don't have to go with a proprietary choice. I think that seems like a good deal for customers. So I think, I think we had a coherent story around all the news items. One, so if you're selling toys, you mm-hmm. can move online. And you're going to need some good security around it. And if you're international, like selling in Paris, you might need some controls over where the data is going back and forth. And, of course, you're going to have to integrate your stuff from on-premise, and then you're going to need a database in the cloud. So th- that, that's just all, you know, it's all set up there for some toy company to, to take care of. And, mm. uh, you know, Jeffrey hopefully is in there. It's a Jeff, Jeff, <laughs> Jeffrey startup someone needs yeah. to do or transition. Or Jeffrey's unemployed, yeah. Oh, good old Jeffrey. Man, I I used to go there all the time, a lot more than Blockbuster and Circuit City, but we'll see mm-hmm. what happens with them. Well, so Abby, how long have you been uh, at the uh, the Cloud Foundry Foundation now? Is it like two or three years? I have no sense of time. Uh, you know, it's been, a little, I think, a little over two years, uh, but it does seem like a mix of decades and just yesterday, so somewhere in between those two. That's right. Decades um, and just yesterday. <laughs> somewhere in between those two, the range. But it's been a it's been a couple of years, and it's been a thrilling couple of years with Cloud Foundry because I bet 
as you know, Cloud Foundry is um, getting a, quite a bit of momentum in the enterprise space. Yeah, yeah. How many how many members do y'all have? Well, well, first of all, I mean, I don't know. People probably know, but give a give a brief overview of what what the uh, the CFF, as we like to say. What do, what do y'all do? What do we do? We are the holding company of the Open Source Cloud Foundry, and what that really means is we are one responsible for the holding and maintaining of the IP and the trademark. So we're constantly checking who's got it making sure controls are in place and um, also validating trademark and, you know, which guaranteeing trademark controls with uh, making sure that no one is using it improperly. We also are responsible for the community and the ecosystem around Cloud Foundry and continuing to foster that and make sure that it's sustainable. And then we're responsible for really the guiding central vision of Cloud Foundry with you know, really one goal to make sure that Cloud Foundry continues to remain um, here and sustainable for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. How do you look at that then and say things are good or bad? Like, how do you measure health of something like that? Is it, you know, when you're you're looking at the landscape, are you looking at members? Are you looking at committers? Like, how do you sit back at the beginning of the year, or the end of the year, and go, this is things are going well? Well, it's, it's a mixture of all those things. There's general health data points, right? Uh, membership is growing. We're up to 65 members. Um, the ecosystem of capabilities around Cloud Foundry continue to grow um, because as a platform, we need all of those things. We don't just need apps and users. We need apps, users, services, and, and, a, and a larger ecosystem around Cloud Foundry that makes sure that it continues to remain viable. And then uh, velocity, looking at the contributions, as well as the diversity of the committers and the contributors to, to make sure that we're continuing to bring a wide variety of people to contribute to the project and making sure that that velocity continues to go to make sure it's a healthy project and a healthy tech. Mm-hmm. When So I was looking this morning at the uh, the membership list and by my completely unofficial count, because I didn't know there would be math, was uh, you know maybe seventy percent or so of the members in CFF are consumers, not the creators of software, like not committers. It's maybe it's even higher than that. So, is that higher than other? I mean, trying to, I mean, when I looked at some of the other foundations, I, I couldn't tell if it was wildly different. Am I wrong? Is it mostly kind of consumers versus creators, kind of the customers, if you will? And and what do you think of that? Like, is that something? that you've actually tried to foster, which is more people who are kind of stakeholders in the software versus creators of the software. Well, actually, yeah, we're at 40% of our membership are end users. Um, and that is very unique in the open source projects. And what's so fascinating about what Cloud Foundry has been able to do is bring those particularly enterprise end users to the table and get them involved and, and get them excited about not just being part of an open source community, but contributing back. And that is absolutely something I'm trying to foster uh, more so in 2018, is to really encourage more companies like Comcast and Home Depot and American Airlines who you know have are new to open source and are trying to figure out how to contribute back and be part of uh, the community at large and be really active members in that. And that's been, really exciting for me um, as an open source leader, but then also looking across at other open source projects and how we can really set the the stage for to show how other enterprises can continue to be involved in open source projects. 
And and so what do you uh, what are some things you see those uh, end users end user members doing? Like what what kind of what kind of activity do they have, and what do they contribute to, or what do they do? What do they do? <laughs> well, it's early days yet. Um, as you know, it's um, it's a challenge for many of these companies that have never participated in open source to to really finagle the process with legal and their general count, you know, their general counsel as well as how do they contribute back. But a couple of them are starting to to break through. Um, but where they are able to participate right now is um, we have what's known is a user advisory council. That's just a collection of the end users of Cloud Foundry, and it gives them a chance to come together and share ideas and lessons learned. And that's been really exciting to see them participate in these events and sit down and share their lessons learned with other users. And I feel like that, if nothing else, does such a massive, a massive amount of good for other end users that are new to this to figure out how they can, you know, where to get started or how to get over the hump that they're in or what are other people experiencing along the digital transformation journey? Yeah, no, that, that, that is, that is one of the more fascinating things in this, uh, cloud foundry community is you actually have uh, very chatty non-vendors end users. And, <laughs> and it is, uh, somehow, They've all gotten encouraged to, well, not all, uh, more, uh, an amount greater than, let's say, zero to five have uh, been encouraged to talk a lot, which I think is a huge difference from, I don't know, the last 20 years of open source or something. The end users never really used to talk about anything. It was just vendors and the, uh, the you know, independent people who would discuss things. So that's exciting. But yeah, I, I imagine there's a lot of uh, sorting out with, with lawyers what to do. Because I remember in the mid-2000s, that's what vendors would spend a lot of time with. And somehow it miraculously all worked out. Everyone was cool with it. But hopefully that'll happen in big uh, organizations as well. So then another, uh, I don't know, maybe over the past year or so, I don't know, as you say, if it was, uh, what was it, yesterday or a decade? But uh, like Kubernetes became a big deal in the, the, the cloud foundry world. And like, what's, what's, your, uh, what's your version of how that came about? Like, what, what's kind of the timeline of that and where we are nowadays? Well, it's a really long story. So uh, the short version is, ta-da, it's here. Um, no, Kubernetes has been around for a few years, originally incubated in Google and then... Um, donated to what became the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And, you know, over the past, particularly over the past year and a half, we've really seen Kubernetes, which um, for those of you that don't know what it is, it's a container orchestrator. And we've really seen that mature and grow and become a, a really amazing and mature technology. And so, you know, within the open source Cloud Foundry, we started looking at it about a year and a half ago to figure out, you know, kind of keeping an eye on it, watching it as it matured. And then it was really exciting to see Pivotal and Google a, what was it, like almost eight months, actually almost a year ago, I guess, at this point, That's right. yeah. worked together on Kubo, which was Kubernetes on Bosch. And then the end of last year, so in June of last year, Kubo was formally donated to the Cloud Foundry Foundation. And then in October of 2017, we rebranded it to be known as Container Runtime, 
to really draw this distinction between what was formerly elastic runtime, which we rebranded to be an application runtime, and then we have container runtime so that we can see how all of this all fits together in the Cloud Foundry ecosystem and how we can bridge both the containerized workload solutions with container runtime with um, the application runtime experience for those that are looking to run and deploy 12-factor apps. And so really, how do we bridge those things together? And so Kubernetes has been a really important part of that story. And I think we'll continue to see that story grow. One of our key guiding principles for 2018 is interoperability. And for us, that means building bridges to other technologies and other projects like Kubernetes. But that also means um, projects like Open Container Initiative, where we pulled in Run C or the work around CNI, the container networking interface. And we're also working on projects like CSI, the container storage interface, and Istio, and Envoy, and Open Tracing, and many others to look at these technologies as they mature and figure out how they fit in Cloud Foundry. So I'm interested in, so I mean, that's a great summary. So given kind of Cloud Foundry, I guess the, the umbrella is a little different than it was, let's say, two or three years ago. How do you, you know, what is your Cloud Foundry elevator story? Let's Now let's say this is the, like, I just want to understand it, right, to the un, uninitiated. Now that this does more things and there's more projects involved, like what is your having a barbecue with your friends or riding an elevator? Like how would you describe what Cloud Foundry is now? My narrative for this year is really Cloud Foundry is the tool that helps companies shape their future. Uh, oftentimes, I refer to it um, simplistically as an operating system of the data center, but it's really what's helping companies, particularly companies that want to be software companies, help them shape the future of that company, help shape the future of their company, and, be, and do it so effectively. Allow them to really give their developers the freedom to create but also giving them the opportunity to make those leaps and becoming a software company. It's significant gains. If you are you know, becoming a software company, what does that mean? That means you're actually um, either hiring or elevating the role the developer plays in how your company does business. And, and so we're seeing Cloud Foundry be an enablement for companies that are looking to develop and deploy applications into production faster. And so, you know, we've seen production, you know, we've seen gains from companies like Home Depot, for example, that were able to to move from deploying code every six weeks or every six months to now they're doing it every day. Um, or companies like HS, HSBC or not, uh, no, HCSC, the healthcare company that went from nine months for a mobile app to be deployed in production to now they're doing it in four weeks. And so those type of gains which we're seeing reinforced by our user survey is significant. And if you're able to shave off that amount of time and that amount of effort to get applications out the door into production, the impact on your business is also significant. And it's fundamentally changing the way they think about their business and also how they, how they shape what they're doing and how they're engaging with their customers. And and then and then so on a slightly different topic, but you know, since you have, uh, you know, I, I sit here in pivotal, very myopic. I just pay attention to uh, if I can wear shorts or not, and uh, <laughs> and, then, and then also like sort of like what pivotal is up to. But like, what are all the uh, uh, 
I mean, maybe maybe some of our listeners should not listen to this part. But what are, what are like the other distros that are out there, and 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 people who um, embed Cloud Foundry uh, in their their system? Like, what's the on the whatever the opposite of uh, end user is? Like on the vendor side, what are what are people up to there with Cloud Foundry? Uh, we have a lot of distributions. Um, so Pivotal Cloud Foundry is one. Um, for the listeners that aren't familiar with the other distributions, we have um, SAP Cloud, SAP Cloud Platform. So SAP Cloud runs on Cloud Foundry. You also have IBM's Bluemix, um, which runs on Cloud Foundry. There's um, also a distribution with Fujitsu, their K5, uh, Huawei's Fusion Stage, Atos, Cloud Foundry, and then what we'll be announcing soon um, will be a certified distribution, but was announced last year. SUSE Cloud Foundry has also joined the mix. Oh yeah! And so we're we're, we're yeah, so we're seeing a lot of uh, different distributions and different solutions that are built on top of Cloud Foundry that are going to market in, in very different ways. And I think that really, to me, highlights the power of Cloud Foundry. It is. It is the underpinnings of this massive shift in enabling code, application services to be run on a singular platform and scaled out and run at cloud scale. And I think that's really where we're going to see a lot more momentum in the future. And, and so, uh, so now, as we mentioned, the Cloud Foundry Summit's coming up, CF Summit. You, there's like two of these a year, right? A Europe one and a U.S. one? Yes, there's a North America and a Europe one every year. So this one's coming up April 18th through 20th in Boston. Yeah, This will be our first one on the East Coast. It's always been in Santa Clara historically for North America. So we're branching out to the East Coast. I'm really mm-hmm. excited about that. And then there will be, to your point, there's one in Europe, October 11th and 12th in Basel, Switzerland. Mm, Basel. Yeah, so you're not going to be in the uh, San Jose Conference Center with the Hyatt uh. attached to it? gonna miss it i know it's been there forever but uh i can't i know actually i'm not gonna miss santa clara at all <laughs> i'm just not <laughs> uh yeah I, you know it, yeah. It, it, it is a nice place but if you go there if you've been there like 10 to 30 times in your career you know yeah. it's uh they had that sushi bar i remember the last time i was there they had like an interesting uh exhibition in the lobby about alcatraz and they had those, remember in museums, they used to have these like all white casts of like uh, to scale humans that don't have faces on them. And they were kind of hanging out in there. It was, it was an interesting and odd display, but you know, wow, was... I'll, I'll miss out on that. I, I'm sure you will. That's uh so the uh, complete uh, shift in gears there, the theme you, uh, you listed for CF summits running at scale. Right. I'm just curious yeah. as to kind of how did you choose that and, and why do you or how do you think that's reflected in the content for someone coming to attend? Like, why is that a theme that should get them excited? Well, we started brainstorming themes and uh, the one in Boston is actually going to be a couple of days after the Boston Marathon. So for those of you coming to Summit, if you come a couple of days early, you can participate in the Boston Marathon or at least watch it. Um, so we thought about the running, but then we really thought about what does 2018 represent in Cloud Foundry, particularly for our end users. And we're starting to see all of these end users that started on the platform, you know, a year ago or two years ago, really starting to grow their deployments. And so we really thought running at scale, 
and that's what a lot of the conversations are going to represent in terms of content is how users are using Cloud Foundry, but more importantly, how are they using it to run their applications at scale? And I think that is a, a powerful story for our users to tell, but I think it's also an, an important story to talk about when we talk about the maturity and the breadth and the growth of Cloud Foundry and how it's really been able to enable enterprises to move more and more workloads to the cloud. Mm -hmm. What do you hope someone walks away with? You know, on Friday night, because there's a Wednesday through Friday, right? I think Wednesday is some keynotes and then Thursday, Friday are the full days. Someone flies home on Friday night, what should they be chewing on in their in their mind as they're on the plane? Well, a couple of things. One is this is a great opportunity. You know, if I'm an end user, it's a good opportunity for me to learn from other end users what they've done, how they've made the, the transformation in their organizations and how they've really adopted Cloud Foundry. Because, you know, I love Cloud Foundry and I think the technology is amazing, but I also realize that most of the work, most of that when we talk about this transformation work is really more of a cultural and business change. And so I'd love for end users to, to look at that and say, oh, I can do that. And, you know, I've learned from other users how they manage to, to cross that chasm and really make that change in their organizations. And then if you are, um, part of our ecosystem, really get a good look at what enterprises are doing and what are the services and capabilities that we, we still need to add to our ecosystem and how, and how do we continue to expand that and grow that and, and make sure that it's continuing to evolve to meet the needs of your, our end users. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll say I love time and time again this show and of course our own Spring One platform and others as well. I love this focus on customer stories because sometimes tech for tech's sake is really exciting, but you almost leave a little empty because it still may feel just disconnected from reality or like, hey, I can't implement that. So hearing how real people do stuff, I don't know, that always gets me pumped up at these shows. So I'm glad to see such a good schedule this year for that. I guess speaking of the schedule, Mr. Cote, we, I was uh, asking you for some of your top talks for this for this show, since you'll be there trolling around, I will be as well. Are there? Uh, do you want to list some of your your top talks that you're interested in? And then Abby can't play favorites, so maybe she can call out some of the keynotes she's at least looking forward to. Mm, that's right. Just a good a good preview there. You, mm -hmm. Like you know, one has to like all of them. The, all all oh, of the of children course. are great. <laughs> some of them just greater than others, maybe. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, well, to that end, right? Like I'm always. Uh, I, I'm always attracted to uh, the the stories of people using things good and bad, and and uh, well, not not good and bad, good and bad uh, lessons learned uh, that people have had. And so the ones I was looking through, there's there's one that's on. Uh, I think it's from uh, is is it? Uh, I forget which which royal bank, but one of the banks, uh, and it's called transforming a bank with highly opinionated automated re release pipelines. There's an A in there. I skipped an article, but I think that one will be interesting. Like it looks like a lot more than how to configure your, uh, your pipeline sort of thing. But as I, as I was looking over it, I was thinking like, uh, you know, it's almost, it's almost sort of like everyone sort of takes for granted that you should have a build pipeline in place. And I, I never see people talking about it very much. Like, here's how you get a build pipeline set up. But it's sort of critical to have that. It's sort of like the first thing you need to have. Uh, and, and it's probably not like super easy to get upset at a large scale because I always imagine part of the problem would be, you know, you don't want to have everyone using their own build pipeline. And so it would be interesting to see what, uh, what the story there is. Like there's a, there's a good Gary Groover book uh, 
with like an elephant on the cover that's dancing. And it's all, it's all about sort of like DevOps and transformation. But I think the main point of the book is like, you better get a build pipeline in place or none of this is going to work. So it does seem like a underreported or talked about topic, probably very underreported. I can't remember the last time I read about build pipelines from a uh, tech journalist. I'm sure that really gets their, uh, their hearts throbbing right about a build pipeline. Mm -hmm. So then there's another one uh, that's basically, it looks like the, the main session from uh, some U.S. military people, or the DOD, as they like saying. And uh, they're interesting because there's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff about how the Air Force and other people have been, have been using Cloud Foundry, uh, which, you know, uh, saying something like this always seems insulting, but I never would have thought the military would be like that quick to do things. And also, you know, because of the way they describe it, that usually it would take them uh, like five years to get a release or software out. And instead, they can do it in 120 days or so. And so I think I think on the uh, I think, as you would say, I think this is how uh, the modern economist intellectuals say on the margin. It's always interesting to see what what people are up to, because the extreme cases are very instructive about things. And so there's the um, there's the case that probably a lot of people are familiar with where there was a. Uh, they like improved the way that they uh, had air tankers refueling jets, and they used to use a whiteboard and have someone named a gonk and all this business. And then they wrote uh, some software that let them do it in minutes instead of, uh, I don't know, all day long to process it. So I think there's probably a lot of cases of uh, literal digital transformation where they went from, they were in a very analog way of doing things. And uh, they transform over to do it. And then also, like, I'm always interested in government stuff because one of the, uh, uh, as organizations scale their change, I think one of the things they often encounter is like budgeting and oversight and uh, project planning, which are all, uh, for better or worse, core competencies of big government projects. So there's probably a lot of interesting uh, lessons learned uh, that, that we could extract from there. So government work's always interesting. And then finally, uh, just as I was sort of asking about, there's two two sessions from a uh, an SAP person and another one from an IBM person, and and I think the title of the first one sums it all up. Why do I need Kubernetes when I already have Cloud Foundry? And so I think I think that'll be interesting to see what the uh, what the explanation is there. And then the other one is kind of in the same area how how you compare the two of them together. And so I think that's of, of interest to all sorts of people, how those two relate to each other and play around with each other or integrate, as I think the professionals would say. So those are like the, uh, I guess those are four, if I remember how to count. And I think, I think those ones will be, mm -hmm. will be interesting. Nice. Yeah, we had uh, so many government talks. We actually added a government track this year. So this is um, the oh, first yeah, summit that's we've right. had a government track at. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so let's see, what did I list out? So there were five I, I listed, because I do count, not just the four, but to the bonus five. is uh, The first <laughs> one I was looking at was uh, operating PCF via concourse, kind of how do you sleep more, worry less. Scotia Bank folks are doing some good stuff with concourse and running platforms. And again, I just, I'm just i fascinated with this sort of platform as product, which is another one I listed that uh, our folks in CSAA and Liberty Mutual, we're all going to have, I think, a conversation about, which is how do you run these platforms as products, which to, I think a lot of people starts to feel like that's what DevOps really looks like at an enterprise. You don't just have ops people embedded in every team. Instead, you have teams that work down to the platform, and then the platform is run as a product by people with ops skills and people who will set up networking and storage and update OSs and things like that. So those two talks jumped out at me. Then there was a good one 
uh, deep dive into modernization patterns, which I thought looked pretty good given, you know, that's what a lot of people care about. That's not just greenfield development. So this was using some experience from what 45 modernization projects and pulling these patterns in so you could actually learn things about decomposition and the like. So I like those sort of things when it's based on real life. Uh, there was another one I liked that looked interesting, accelerating adoption at Ultimate Software. And I listed that because, Abby, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the people we talk about using Cloud Foundry are often kind of enterprises who are trying to get good at software. So it's different when an actual software company who will sell products as a SaaS provider and the like, and Ultimate's a huge one, actually runs then their platform on Cloud Foundry. I thought that was interesting. I haven't heard a ton of their story, so I wanted to get into that a little more. Am I right, Abby, that a lot of the Cloud Foundry customers we talk about are the Home Depots, Allstates, Comcast. I mean, these great companies who are still now powered by software, but they don't. their core business isn't necessarily selling software. Well, um, according to our last user survey, which we're going to announce um, hmm. a lot of the data on stage at Keynote, at the Keynote um, at Boston, 74% are large enterprises now. Hmm. So it's um, it's gone up a little bit since the last user survey. But yeah, so by and large, they're the core user of Cloud Foundry are large multinational mm -hmm. enterprise organizations. Um, so I, yeah, I do think it's, um, that is a bit of a different story to talk about it from a software provider standpoint. Yeah, and potentially an interesting one given sometimes software teams, and I've been part of those, sometimes these become just like, hey, let's use the just whatever tech we can use open source and just run it. And that's awesome. And Cloud Foundry, obviously open source as well. But sometimes you almost end up compiling your own poor man's PaaS. And in some cases, maybe this is a pattern moving forward for some of these shops who, why reinvent the wheel when you should be building actually your platform on a good platform? So I just want to hear more from what they're up to. And then the last one I listed was uh, enabling .NET applications with performance monitoring and management with Cloud Foundry, mainly just because I you know, admire uh, Abby and team for having a .NET track at a Cloud Foundry summit that's been probably an unnatural thing as of a few years ago, but now... This is a legitimate show with some really good case studies in that track from a lot of interesting customers and these sort of tech talks about how do I take in Java.net, Node.js, Ruby, Go, all these sort of Cloud Foundry languages. How are we actually optimizing those for one platform? I think this should be a really interesting look at that. I'm, I'm glad to see this being something that shows up at a Cloud Foundry show. Always We're a booster for the to bring more and more of those. <laughs> yes, I am. I love it. I think we've been trying to get more .NET talks in since last year. So I'm really excited to be, be able to offer quite a few talks, a track um, on it. We're gonna have Microsoft on the main stage on uh, Thursday. So that's gonna be awesome to hear, not just talk about .NET, but Azure and the, uh, the deep integration across all of that. Awesome. Good, so those are my five. Or Abby, were there, there are things that you or at least are looking forward to? Not saying there's, those are your favorites. <laughs> I, well, to your point, they're all my favorites. Uh, I mean, my talk should be exceptional, so you are allowed to point that out. But uh, other than that, <laughs> other, other talks that you're Rich, Well, clearly, any talk that Richard gives, <laughs> we should all attend. Clearly. Um, no, I, I just, it's, to me, summits at a, at a very high level represent an amazing opportunity to see what people are actually doing with Cloud Foundry. And that's really something that's hard to grok when you're not at Summit and you're not seeing the breadth of the conversations and hearing from users and providers and integrators, the breadth of the work. Every Summit, I always hear from a new user that I didn't know was a user. Um, usually it's an open source user. It's like, hey, yeah, I've been using you for years. And I'm like, oh, I had no idea. 
um, there's like, if, if, uh, I always find one new one at every summit. And so it's always an opportunity to hear from a new user, what they're using, how they're using it, um, the work they're doing with it. Um, in fact, this year on the keynote stage, we're going to have um, a couple of interesting talks about what some of the other providers, but also some of the other users are doing that we haven't really talked to before. Um, one of them is Zipcar. And I'm looking forward to, to hearing their talk on how they're using Cloud Foundry. But, you know, to your point about some of the other not typical users, it'll be great to hear from some of the providers and the, and some of the other software service providers like Mindex and Dynatrace to hear how they're using Cloud Foundry and, you know, and how they're working with their customers. Yeah, and I'm biased, Abby, but, you know, I, I think we have some press and analysts showing up at the event as well. Am I right? We have a, an amazing list of press and analysts coming to the event. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, you know, you and I both talk, I think, to a fair number of, of analyst folks, and sometimes I suspect they try to box Cloud Foundry into just like, hey, here's some enabling tech, and and let's move on and categorize it with with some sort of quadrant or wave or geometric shape, but that there's, like, there's a focus on outcomes that I think comes out at this show that's different to some extent than others. Like you, to your point, these stories are sometimes this is what this has directly enabled me to do, not seven layers of indirection, but because of this, my business has changed this way. I, I personally think these shows are beneficial to that set who sometimes just drive by technology and they actually can sit in here. Yeah, this this was more than just an orchestrator. This was more than just this. This is what actually helped me create this new user experience with my customer and now I know them better and that's changed our business. Like those those are good stories. I think they come out at places like Summit that you might not get just by following people like you and me on Twitter. Yeah, I mean it's it's just it's so phenomenal. In fact, I I am um, I'm obviously anyone I talk to I tell come to Summit and uh, but you know, I think that's a true story not just for end users of Cloud Foundry, which you know, I highly encourage every single one of them. But hey, hey, if you're interested in digitally transforming your organization, you should go to Summit. If you are a startup that's targeting the enterprise infrastructure business, go to Summit. You can hear directly from enterprise end users what they actually care about and what they're doing. If you're an integrator or an SI, uh, go to Summit and learn what people are doing and what they're struggling with. You know, it's it's a huge opportunity to really be thoughtful to your point about business outcomes. What are what are enterprise organizations using? Why are they using it? And what are they solving with that? And I think that gets lost oftentimes when we start talking about technology just for technology's sake, when actually technology should solve an outcome. It should solve a problem. And here's the, you know, Summit really represents a great opportunity to hear what it solves and why that's important. So, so then you mentioned this briefly, but what's, uh, I mean, y'all, y'all put out a lot of uh, surveys. Like what's, what's the survey you'll, you'll be coming or you'll be publishing at Summit? We're going to have two. So we just closed the last user survey, which mm. one we did before that we closed in uh, October. Um, so it's been uh, nearly six months since the last user survey. Uh, I'll be excited to, to present some data on that, which um, is really, really interesting to give you a, a little hint. It's, um, it's exciting to see how Cloud Foundry continues to progress with the end users. Um, and then we'll also be presenting our latest round of our global perception survey, which we work with a third party and twice a year, we do qualitative and quantitative research across eight different countries to see technology trends, um, how different enterprises are using tech, 
the role it plays in their organization, their awareness of tech and their understanding. Um, and so it's a, it's a good barometer on how the technology is evolving, where organizations are in that journey, and, and where, where do we see trends going? And so all of that data will be producing white papers, but we'll also be presenting a lot of that at Summit. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, those surveys are always nice. I, I like I like any uh, any survey, mm-hmm. especially if if it's uh, you know available only for an email address. And and then as always, you know <laughs> y'all y'all can provide some more raw fodder for Lawrence over at the Newstack. He's always coming up with some wacky charts, and I think I think he pulls from you you, you all a lot. Well, that's great. Well, is, is there anything else uh, you want people to look forward to at CF Summit? How's the food going to be? I'm sure you played a very large role in selecting that, right? That comes up all the time. Uh, well, I love food. You know that. And I like. I will show up at events where there's food. In fact, I'm always worried about where the next food is going to come from. Mm. Um, As I think most of humanity is. <laughs> but I feel like everyone looks at me like me more than most because I'm like, well, is food going to be there? If not, I can't come. I'm mm. sorry. I don't. <laughs> but uh, we uh, there will be lots of snacks. Mm. There will. Uh, but we'll be in Boston, and we will be downtown Boston. So there is a lot of great food that um, is around the conference center, so everyone can partake and enjoy in all of the amazing food that Boston has to offer as well, which I'm really excited about. Mm, that's nice. true. Just just like chowder during the breaks, like whatever sits there the, outside the booths, and oh, that'll be great. Now, now yeah, gonna, I'll, I'll get all I'll get all my uh, my New England uh, friends. I guess I have at least one all riled up. But Boston is where they've got the lobster rolls, right? Is that is that their big deal? Or am I confusing it with one of the other states up there? Yeah, yeah. lobster, okay. chowder, to, to Richard's point. I think uh, a lot of seafood. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, which I'm excited about all of that. But I don't know about the availability of barbecue, so you might have to bring your own cook. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, you know, I, I yeah. You know, I we do have I think a seventy dollar per diem here at Pivotal. And when you leave the Austin airport, you can get a whole brisket for I think sixty five dollars. So I've always wondered if uh, I should bring some brisket for friends and basically torment the whole plane with the smell of uh, barbecue. Although they must seal it together. But I feel like if you bought a whole brisket for a flight that long, you should probably just open it on the plane and eat some of it. You should, totally. But I think you should put get two and you could put one in your bag for later and then one on the plane. Oh, that's a good idea. Eat the whole. That would be impressive. I would impress <laughs> myself doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I remember the first time I was actually with uh, uh, this this per- I forget what she was doing at the time. I think she's at SAP now, uh, like like Maggie Fox. And uh, we, we, we were in Boston at one of the this is back when every conference ended in 2.0. So we're at the Enterprise 2.0 conference. And we were going to go get lobster rolls at some uh, classic place. And so we get there, and, it's, uh, and, and it was totally fine. But it's actually a uh, what, what, what we, in my parts, we would call a submarine sandwich uh, with lobster and cream sauce. And I had been thinking it would be sort of like, you know, dumplings, like rolls that you would get. So you got to figure out your, uh, your regional expectation. I guess they call it, you know, you got your hoagies and your rolls and your submarine sandwiches. You got your burritos, your mission burritos. Very complicated chart. So, you know, if anyone hasn't had a lobster roll, it's not going to be a roll. Just prepare yourself for that. But it is delicious. So that's that's my food preparation. 
mentality there. But anyhow, uh, well, thanks for being on. This has been, you know, in addition to figuring out food, I think there was some other interesting stuff we talked about. So that's, uh, that's of course, <laughs> nice. So if, if people wanted to uh, see, see what you and the Cloud Foundry Foundation are up to, what would you point them to on the old internet? Well, cloudfoundry.org. We overhauled the website last year and are constantly adding content and, and iterate on that. So if you're ever curious, cloudfoundry.org. We have everything on how to get started, what we're doing, um, what we're up to, and or you can go and check out user stories in the blog uh, where it's a ton of great content from across all of our distributions and all of our end users. And and y'all uh, y'all record and put the videos up for these sessions, right? Not to discourage people from attending in person, but if you can't make it, you can catch up with it sometime later. Yes, uh, we, uh, we we live stream the keynotes, and we also record every session. And uh, those will be those are usually posted within seven days of the end of summit. Oh, that's so quick! I'm used to having to wait for a long time, but seven days is amazing. That's fun. That is good. And then you can live tweet the keynotes, like you're saying. We'll of course. Look forward to that. Well, I, I fully expect both of you to live tweet everything. Mm. Yeah, go use uh, Storyfy. Is that still a thing? Yeah. I just want to make sure I get the hashtag right. I know we all seem to use 16 different hashtags at the summit, so I'm going to get the right one this year. <laughs> well, I think we've gone back to CF, hashtag CF Summit. We all were, right. There was a lot of debate over what that looked like over the past <laughs> few years. Yeah. But hashtag CF Summit tends to be Perfect. The, uh, the regular one. That's right. There we go. Yeah, there's some people in the DevOps days world, and I always want to use like uh, DD or something, or DO, I don't know, DOD. That's what they want to use, but that, that just seems ridiculous. I don't like that very much. Just to be on the Department record there. Department of Defense. That's, yeah, something <laughs> like that. Hashtag Department of Defense. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to confuse your, uh, your streams. You have like, you know, blameless postmortems and then like missile strikes. Mix those together. <laughs> be be odd, odd streams of content to have in one. Anything can happen. That's right. That's CF right. Summit. Well, as always, this has been Pivotal Conversations. If you want to get the most recent episodes or peruse our backlog of exciting episodes, uh, you can go to soundcloud.com slash pivotal conversations. And, uh, you know, more or less every Thursday we post the full show notes and we'll put some links to those, um, uh, those sessions we're looking forward to and the news stories and things like that. Over there at pivotal.io slash podcast. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>